Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Shear. Thanks for joining me again. Today we're going to go at length about the little buzzing bees and flies that really create the world around us. I think I first became enamored of the forgotten pollinators when I read that book by Gary Nabhan. And he wrote about all the little sweat bees that lived along the shores of the Great Salt Lake. And it turned out were the ones really doing the yeoman's work, helping all those Utah farmers get their produce to market. We think it's honeybees, but it turns out it's not. It's all the native pollinators who really make it possible for the flowers to blossom, go to seed, bear fruit, give us the food we need. So this is a conversation with two folks who are thinking a lot about native pollinators in urban settings. Pollinators Week has been designated by Congress. That's how important even those folks think the native pollinators really are. So a conversation with Allison Renard and Ray Williams about urban farms and ways to protect the urban environment by just making sure you plant a few more native flowering plants. Right outside this doorway, there's a rhododendron, probably native. I see a sword fern, probably native. Um, I forget what those large trees are with the, uh, with the hickory-like nuts, but that's not a native tree. I forget what it's called. A smoke tree, which I think is also not native. What good do those plants, the non-native plants, do for native pollinators as compared to the roadie and the sword fern? Well, our native pollinators are definitely going to prefer native plants. And at the Common Acre, we're really working to study and identify our wild bees here. So some are still introduced, but to date we've identified about 100 species of bees. And we're releasing a field guide um, this June during Pollinator Week to kind of get the public introduced to some of these new bees. And um, the... Both native and non-native plants are going to provide some floral forage, but when you're developing pollinator habitat, particularly from a floral perspective, there's very specific needs for each species of bee. So some bees only eat from blue flowers, and some species only eat from native wildflowers that are a certain shape because of their tongues. So we really have to be... um, generalists in terms of our planting styles. And actually, what we're hoping to do at the Common Acre is take that one step further and go beyond talking about the flowers and start talking about other land management strategies. Because about 80% of our bees are actually ground nesters and they need open ground to nest. So turf is really bad for them. Introduce us to just a few of these bees, just a few of them. I'm curious, 100 bees that Mm -hmm. people probably don't know about, unaware about. Yeah, so I'm not as good at identifying them down to the species with their Latin names. We work with some great entomologists from UW and WSU who help with the research side of things. But uh, some of the most common bees are um, sweat bees, which actually look kind of like a fly. I think they were the most common. There were a few other really common bees. Um, Mining bees are another bee that... Um, gets a lot of publicity. The um, orchard mason bee is one of them. But there's about six major genera, families of bees that we've identified. So that includes honeybees and bumblebees, which are the other kind of superstars of the bee world. Just the idea that there's that many bees. That's remarkable. All right. Why is Seattle Pollinator Week important? Pollinator Week is a great opportunity nationally and locally to 
celebrate the work of pollinators and to get more people excited about it and talk about policy change around protecting pollinators. So the Common Acre and um, a few other of our partners at Bee City Seattle were instrumental in getting Seattle certified as the eighth bee city in the nation. So that means within the city we have pretty strict regulations around um, neonicotinoid pesticides are forbidden. They're pesticides that are made based from a nicotine chemical, but they are pretty common, I think, in conventional agriculture. And for instance, if you were go to go buy a plant from Home Depot that was shipped in, it might be treated with neonics and it would actually have to be labeled here. Um, so that those are banned. That was kind of the biggest thing. And then actually citywide, in terms of their landscaping protocols, they use integrated pest management strategies. So always trying to have the least exposure to chemicals in the environment and trying to think about holistic systems management strategies. Ray, how, how did you get connected with Pollinators Week and what's your goal? Well, um, you know, I was in invited to uh, speak at the Pollinators um, Week Lightning Talks um, to share my work in Seattle uh, with urban farming. Been working here about 10 years trying to improve access to urban farming uh, for people of color uh, in the city uh, and uh, been able to develop with uh, a lot of partners some urban farms here and so we're excited to be able to move on to a new space near Yeser Terrace, a one-acre um, new farm space, and because it's a new farm space, it's a perfect experimental spot to um, take a look at sustainable urban farming in in the city, with a with a um, real focus on pollinators. Right? How do we how do we create a farm space that uh, creates uh, an environment uh, for pollinators as as well as people and growing food? So you're talking about the, the area of Yesler Terrace, as you were describing, between Yesler Terrace, where there's a, a big new housing community being built out of an old housing community, and the space below it near I-5. I am trying to imagine what lives there now and how you can encourage pollinators. What are you thinking? Well, it's a typical strip of uh, highway right-of-way, um, lots of uh, dense grasses, um, uh, and uh, some trees. So we're certainly going to leave the trees, and underneath the trees, we're going to try to create as much uh, natural habitat by uh, transplanting uh, native plants in, under the trees. Uh, and then as we start to develop the farm area, um, pulling out the grass, uh, putting in, right now we're going to be using a lot of raised beds because the soil is suspect, uh, being right next to I-5. Uh, eventually we'll, we'll look at soil um, soil mitigation and, and improving the soil there. Our projects include uh, getting raised beds started, both for the local uh, Yeser Terrace community, but also for the larger community. Um, we don't really envision a pea patch situation there, but more of a cooperative urban farm. And that has to be, uh, that has to be defined. I'm gonna cycle back around to pollinators and everything, but since you brought that up, you wrote something very interesting. Um, you wrote me, this will help serve as an anchor to help keep an African-American presence in, the central, in central Seattle and facilitate sharing of cultural traditions among ethnic communities. So there's another, uh, I think a pea patch, right, uh, in the ID that has been... The Danny Yeah, the Danny Wu Garden. It has been uh, critical, I think, to sort of creating an anchor for the, the communities that are there. Is that your model? Well, again, that's uh, more of a pea patch model, and we're looking 
to tr- try to create a, a, a cooperative urban farm that has farm. some econ- um we're not only looking at social uh, social health and mental health and physical health but also economic health in terms of trying to create uh, a sustainable urban farm that is able to pay the farmers from the from the produce that they they produce is that strip big enough to have some economic benefit uh, I think there's going to be some economic benefit. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to get rich growing lettuce in the city. Uh, but to add that, um, add that aspect in terms of growing and selling selling the food locally to make the farm more sustainable, uh, rather than trying to run on grants the whole uh, the whole time, but actually uh, an experiment in sustainability, huh. which which includes economic sustainability. What are your other models for that? I mean, I know there's Seattle Youth Garden, but they're sort of sustained in part by university in some ways what what are your other models of urban farms around the city that you you think can help inform this one um we don't actually have a model within the city i think there are some um tilth programs that try to have individual folks with large enough spaces to um um, to do some market gardens um you know we're we're looking outside the city and outside the country i was able to travel to uh, cuba and look at some of their urban agriculture uh, and their sustainable farming cooperative farming down there uh there's some models in detroit that have um some promise and uh you know, I've actually really been focused on the negotiations between Seattle Housing Authority and WashDOT and able to, to get on to the space, uh, doing community engagement around um, getting folks interested in doing it. But I think the actual economic model is going, is going to be developed. Uh-huh. And so this, this might, be, um, might be, if we're successful, when we're successful, um, this can be a model for other uses of public space. Uh, how many black farmers are in your collective or how what's your vision well so the black farmers collective what was uh, a group of african-american um folks in the food industry in general um, that got together to respond to this rfp from seattle housing authority about about making this and it's been a two-year process um from when we actually got it got the okay to now when we're just about to sign to to move on Um, So we have a half a dozen folks, um, urban farmers from Clean Greens Farm and Market, Lottie Cross and Farmer Tommy uh, with a farm in Duval. They bring food in, have been doing that um, for 10 years. Um, Chef Tarek Abdullah, who uh, is a local local chef. Um, Ron Harris-White worked for the city as part of our part of our crew. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing it. Y. King Garrett, um, Africatown, part of the initial and I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, and I'll, I'll get in trouble for that, but that's okay. <laughs> so how does what you're doing at Yesler and, and Black Farmers Collective, how does it relate back in terms of your farming, in terms of your vision, to what's happening with Common Acre, and, which we'll discuss, and, and pollinators? Well, certainly uh, pollinators are very important for any farm. And so um, and we're trying to create a, a natural ecosystem. So a, a sustainable farm is a natural ecosystem within, within the city. And so a big part of that is supporting those um, organisms that are going to help you out. And certainly pollinators are, are a big piece of that. Um, so um, adding native plants, again, um, um, having some bare ground for bees to, to live in, um, planting strips of wildflowers, you know, at our borders to provide um, 
you know, leaving leaving the flowers on the brassicas all winter and into the spring, right? Uh, um, so pollinators can take advantage of those uh, those food sources. Um, you know, uh, pull them out before they go to seed, though, because they're some they're tough weeds yeah. if you don't want them. Yeah, I was telling Ray that I'd been reading The Forgotten Pollinators by Gary Nabhan, and that one of the discoveries in that book was how important it was for the sweat bees that lived along the shoreline, the the, the shoreline where there wasn't anything growing, uh, for the bees to have a place to nest. And I just think that's fascinating that here, too, we have to create habitat that is bare ground for those bees. I imagine there's going to be a lot of people saying, whoa, why aren't you planting things here? Mm-hmm. Bees need dirt is uh, one of our slogans we're hoping to push. Um, And also, uh, you know, untidy gardeners rejoice because bees like um, cut stems. The pithy stems of raspberry are great. Um, There's lots of sort of untidy strategies to help create habitat, um, bunch grasses and places where the bees can nest kind of right around plants similar to bunch grasses are really great so it's nice to think about incorporating kind of habitat zones into an urban farm and they can also be creative ways to create barriers in an urban setting and um, you know not just raised beds but adding in a little bit of diversity I think crop diversity as well as perennial diversity is really essential to any successful urban farm because of the pollination services. You sent me a list of all these projects and I want to go down the list of them. But for both of you first, so how how'd you get into this? And why is this important to you? Um, well, I have been um, farming since I graduated from college in 2009. I went to Evergreen State College. So I definitely had a very kind of interdisciplinary and creative education. And uh, after school, I spent two years traveling and volunteering on organic farms throughout the States and Europe. And I was kind of looking for the place that I wanted to move, but I realized I really wanted to come back to Washington and wanted to work in education and advocacy around farming rather than just working on an organic farm and selling to wealthy people at a farmer's market. I really wanted to empower more and more people to be growing their own food, especially in an urban environment. I think part of it is just coming from education and a background of social change and really talking about equity in the food system. At some point in your education, you got something, a light bulb went off. Do you remember when? Well, I mean, I definitely have always been Uh, you know, progressive leaning growing up in this area and um, really thinking about um, empowering small communities into direct action and not relying on the corporate system or the government and really wanting to be involved in grassroots advocacy. Um, And I think I got my start in the nonprofit world working with Books to Prisoners down in Olympia and running that branch down there and uh, got really excited about urban farming in particular and came back to Seattle and interned for what was then called Seattle Tilth and then the Danny Wu Garden actually for a couple years and then found Alley Cat Acres um, and I'm still involved there as a farm coordinator and director and so we also have kind of a similar collaborative farming model and that has led me really to municipal land use and creative green spaces in the city here in Seattle as it's rapidly developing and getting more dense and Green space is not really high on the city's priorities. Trying to find those spaces that are owned by a utility or uh, the Port of Seattle where they have vast swaths of land and we're able to 
do projects like Flight Path, for instance, where we are breeding disease-resistant honeybees, we're testing best practices for establishing pollinator habitat, and also finding ways that we can meet the needs of the utility. With the airport, it's diminishing avian flight hazards, so big birds, um, creating pollinator habitat that hopefully meets the metrics for pollinators, but isn't creating more habitat for things like small rodents that is going to attract large birds. Trying to find those ways to have mutually beneficial systems that hopefully we can replicate across municipalities. Did you have an aha moment, Ray, when you started doing this? We had a big garden when I was a kid, and we would visit our friends in Kent who had a farm back in the day. Now I'm a, I'm a science teacher, biology and nutrition, and I really believe one of the best ways to improve your physical and mental health is to uh, grow some of your own food. And so I think that's probably the sort of the basis for why I decided that urban agriculture, especially in communities of color in central Seattle, was was really important direction that I could go to help my help my community. I'd taken a look at educational equity when I was in school and some health equity issues, but actually on the ground trying to support folks to grow a little of their own food. Again, the, the psychological benefits of, of, of being outside and being connected to nature and having a, having a, a, a more human connection to the world as, long, as well as, as eating uh, healthy food. So that's really what got me involved. And then it's got me connected with lots of great folks. It's, uh, it's given me uh, an opportunity to do what I like, which is to create and build things. So I've been able to create and build farms and use my educational background to connect folks and do um, uh, workshops around urban farming. I spent a week at a spring break camp for elementary students at uh, Africatown Center and uh, probably will not be doing that intense work <laughs> again with young students. I'm going to stick with my college students. Um, oh, oh they were a little too much work for you. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. My just hat is off to folks that work work with elementary kids. And they're great. They're great, but it's very, very tiring. Um, but I think if we can get young kids um, there's the classic know where your food comes from, but there's a deeper a deeper connection to helping it grow. Um, you know, having something whether it's chicks and chickens or or fish in your aquaponic system or plants um, to create some empathy uh, for kids around 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 living things. Uh, I think is a great uh, great early life lesson, and um, you know hopefully we'll create you know, um, help some students think about how can they, um, how can they think about improving all of our future through looking at ways to be sustainable. For me, food is that gateway entry point for a lot of people to start caring more about their environment overall. And so for me, getting into this type of work really started with food and with farming, but now it's grown to be defending pollinators because I understand how essential that is and defending open space in general and thinking about our environment and the earth as interconnected systems and not just seeing you know, your food coming from the grocery store and hoping to start that transition at an early age with students. Not really tangential, but just somewhat tangential. The Times today had an article about armoring of shorelines, mostly the seashorelines, Puget Sound shorelines, but you could say the same for lake shorelines too. When I when I kayak along Lake Washington near uh, 
near Laurelhurst, I can I go into Yesler Swamp, which is a, a naturalized place full of turtles, full of frogs and fish. And then I go around the corner where there's armoring of one house after another and people with lawns fertilizing, and it's a much denuded landscape. And that's a lot of the land of Seattle. Do you think that there are uh, ways to reach those homeowners through something like Seattle Pollinators Week to actually get them to reconsider at least part of the use of their land? Because there's no, there's no stick, right? There's only, there's only something you can entice them with. Is there anything there? Our goal really is that bees are a compelling enough uh, figure for people to want to make a small change and to really take this opportunity, especially at the symposium, to talk about how communities can band together. It doesn't have to come from the EPA because we know nothing is coming from the federal government to protect bees right now. Um, it can come from within our local communities and you as a landowner can make small changes that can really impact pollinator habitat. And that's really what we're hoping to accomplish and really start to talk about these lesser-known bees so that people can think beyond having a honey beehive and think about how they can really be impacting with their small daily choices. Uh, I think it's an important thing to, you know, to connect the pollinators, you know, with plants and, and, our, and, our, um, and our urban environment. I mean, to, if, as a science teacher, then, as another model for uh, a real system and a, a, a sustainable urban ecosystem is really to look at the pollinators and how they fit in with the other um, um, with the plants that you're growing first of that beneficial and then what is their relationship to other insects and again how are they how are they also part of the food chain in terms of that um, how do you how do you grow food and expect a little bit of those uh, pollinator larvae to eat a little of your food so then you can have some adults later to to, to have more food. I mean, all those things, are, I think, are important, uh, port, important piece of, um, you know, of the knowledge that has to go into planning, planning a system. I think it's an interesting point you brought up. You know, we talk about folks being moved out by uh, gentrification and uh, expensive land and, and building everything. Well, the natural environment is being pushed out too, right? And so we really have to um, take a look at where, and again, Common Acres looking at public land that's not going to be developed, you know, Black Farmers Collective looking at a strip of highway that's not going to be developed um, as a spot to, to improve the environment, again, for pollinators and, and for people, too, to be able to come and visit and, and see. You know, um, folks at Yesler Terrace used to have individual yard plots in their own the old system now and so a lot of folks there are used to that well the new redevelopment and it's important to be able to redevelop those places were falling down but they don't have a lot of space so part of this urban farm is to provide some space for residents to grow but also in a cooperative way with the rest of the community there have been a lot of black farmers that have been had farmed over in that um, yeser terrace area and our hope is that we have the immigrant farmers that are living at, at yeser terrace collaborate with um, local farmers from the central area uh, to create a, a, a good community there where we're sharing knowledge about how to farm um, different techniques, different plants, um, and, and actually trying to connect communities that are oftentimes siloed, right? You, communities tend to be siloed by language and culture, traditions, um, stereotypes. So an opportunity to, to create a space where folks can work together and uh, bridge some of those gaps that we have. I was in uh, Liberia in Africa, and uh, 
and the war had just ended, this terrible uh, civil war that went on for a long time, and a lot of the elders had been killed. And uh, we went out to a collective farm that one of the former generals of a militia had started, and he was 28. And most of his fighters were 12, 15. There were a few people that were in their early 20s, but that's it. They did not know what they were doing because the knowledge had been wiped out. They had one old person, I mean, some a 75, 80-year-old woman who they had expressly asked to come to help them learn just the basics of farming. The knowledge had been wiped out. And, and I just thought of that, thought about that because when you were talking about that, I mean, it's pretty easy for knowledge to get wiped out, especially in our culture. So, I mean, what you're doing is trying to revive that knowledge, right? Well, yes, exactly, and, and keep it going. I, I know that the East African communities and uh, Vietnamese community at, um, uh, at Yeser Terrace are very interested in continuing garden. And so, I'm, uh, you know, part of our plan as we move forward will be to have some teaching spaces where, where you can actually grow um, with the idea that you're going to pass this on to the next generation. I think wherever I go and, and talk to farmers, that's one of the issues is that farmers are getting older and older, and there are some young folks out there that are interested in it, uh, but not really enough to keep to keep that going. So um, some concerted effort to give opportunities uh, for young people, um, whether it's school credit or stipends or just um, – food for their families, right, to get engaged in this and get excited about, uh, about working the land. Um, I think it's important to, again, to create this next generation of farmers before, you know, some of those techniques are, are wiped out. And young, young people are also very uh, innovative. And so there's some, um, I'm sure there's some things that we could um, work smarter, not harder, and um, look forward to working with them as we try to create a, a space over uh, at the where the working name is Yes Farm. For yes, sir. All right. So give me a few matchbook uh, descriptions of these. I'll just go up. Um, habitat restoration at our partners at EarthCore. Allison, what's that's is that a program or is that more broad? Pollinator habitat restoration. Um, so our partners at EarthCore, they are um, working with us as contractors at our Green Line project and also at our second flight path iteration at Boeing Everett. Um, and they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the labor and um, habitat maintenance. Kind of concurrently with our guide to local bees, um, have just released a guide to pollinator habitat. Um, so they've been they've been working uh, on the Burt Gilman Trail for several years, doing pollinator habitat restoration um, along the right of way there, and working together with City Fruit to do some pollinator habitat under their fruit trees. Um, and so they have released a pretty comprehensive guide that's, I think, was just finalized last week. Mm -hmm. So um, some really great uh, methodologies there. And we're working together to continue to test methodologies for successful habitat establishment, especially when we're working in these super urban areas with compromised soils and lots of invasive species. All right. You mentioned a Green Line project. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So the Green Line is a project that works together with Seattle City Light on their Creston-Duwamish Transmission Corridor, which is a very fancy long name for uh, the high-voltage power lines that run from the eastern hills to the Duwamish River. And we've identified 64 acres under those transmission lines of 
city-owned right-of-way that potentially could be restored into habitat. And it's really exciting because it's looking at creating a lot of contiguous habitat throughout urban zones, especially in southeast Seattle, where there hasn't been a lot of green space and habitat uh, restoration work. And so we're really working to be creative and connect with local communities and find ways that we can get people interacting with this space. So we've done a pilot planting of all native edible and medicinal plants, and we're hoping to really collaborate more with the local tribes and indigenous teachers to start spreading the knowledge of these plants and their historical value in addition to the ecosystem services that they're providing and the Habitat for Bees. And at that site, as well as uh, Port of Seattle and now Boeing, we've been tracking wild bees. So going out once a month with our entomologists and trapping and then creating a reference collection and also now our field guide that's coming out. So we're really tracking the populations kind of at this point, it's still the before survey and then we'll continue tracking and have data about how the populations are actually affected by our restoration. And and what's Common Acre? The Common Acre is a nonprofit that works to restore relationships between people and the land through ecology, community, and the arts. And historically, we've done a lot of programming around public lectures and art series and really work to connect people across cultures and across disciplines um, and hope to kind of celebrate the connection between ecology and art and try to kind of reach people with what speaks to them. And sometimes people who are not so interested in the sciences might really respond to an artistic work. So we always try to combine those two things. Alley Cat Acres is a grassroots urban farming collective that's existed in Seattle since 2009. Um, And our mission is to reconnect people, place, and produce through transforming underutilized spaces into neighborhood-run farms. So rather than a pea patch where people have individual plots, we just have an open farm where people come once a week and work together and take home produce. So we started um, in 2009 with our first farm in Beacon Hill. And then um, by 2015, we had three farms and they were all on residential property. Um, There were two more in the Central District, one at 22nd Union and one at um, MLK and Cherry. And uh, in 2015, they were all sold to developers simultaneously. So it gave us the opportunity to be creative. And we started looking at city-owned land. And now we have four farms exclusively on municipal land. So we work with Department of Transportation, um, the Parks Department, and that's it. And then we have our collaboration with the Common Acre with Seattle City Light. Did you just take lemons and make lemonade? It gave you the opportunity (laughs) to be more creative? Yeah, because exactly. the land was sold out from under you, right? Yeah, um, you know there was definitely a moment of despair, uh, but we saw a lot of land that wasn't being utilized, and um, people were coming out of the woodwork asking us to activate more land, and um, we kind of had a a moment of thinking maybe we just should create temporary farms, but it's really hard to get people to invest in a space that they know isn't going to be there long term. So we started looking at land that won't be developed because it's a transportation right of way or a dead end street that they haven't developed for the past hundred years. And there's a lot of grade problems and construction workers have just been dumping fill dirt. There's a forest of Japanese knotweed. So one of our kind of biggest undertakings that we're working on um, currently is down in Brainerd Valley Mm -hmm. on Wetmore Avenue South and 
working with the city to try and actually develop new models of looking at that land and activating communities and volunteer labor to transform it into a place to grow food, to connect communities, and also to get folks engaged in gardening and farming who can't commit to maintaining their own garden, who can't commit to a pea patch or are experiencing the three-year wait times that often come with pea patches. Um, We work a lot with seniors and um, school groups so that they can come in and experience the garden but not have to worry about watering and doing all the weeding and so is there one uh, up and running now that you would point to and say here's our model or are these all still in the planning um, the cascade people center garden i was mentioning is the garden that i coordinate Um, we have one at 24th and main um, in collaboration with Monica's Village Place and Catholic Community Services. So it's right in the middle of the Central District near the Douglas Truth Library. That's expanded a lot in the past couple years. Um, another one at 26 and Marion in the Central District. Another kind of parking strip farmlet, we like to call them. And then the Wetmark Garden is still kind of in progress. But we have peas and radishes and lettuces growing there for the first time. So we're excited. Very cool. That's great. <laughs> You've been there. Uh, you know, yes, I have. Um, in the early days of, of um, fighting back the, uh, the invasive plants there um, to the um, sitting in on some of the community development meetings that they had in terms of, of the um, neighborhood imp- input to the, the plan um, to, and to then actually seeing some of the, the plants started. I think that's a great model. Um, I think we should also, when we're talking about urban agriculture, realize we can't feed everybody right in the city. So there needs to be connections to local farms. How do we, how do we try to um, um, sustain and build the um, farms? Uh, let's say in Duval, um, Clean Greens Farm and Market has a, a farm in Duval, and they take folks from the inner city. Um, and volunteers to go out and work that and then they bring um, vegetables back for their own uh, farmers market and uh, contracts with food banks for for fresh fresh vegetables so how do you create um, not just an urban but maybe urban and peri-urban food system a local food system that can be uh, more sustainable and can have uh, more of the profits sort of cycle in with the in the community so growing um, growing, um, getting enough money to lease the land, work the land, um, selling at at, uh, at local markets at a reasonable rate, um, uh, distributing some free food, and then um, um, closing that gap, I think, by engaging restaurants who, who buy a lot of fresh food, right, in, in that system. Is, is there substantially more participation in these programs than there were... I don't know how far back historically you can look, but 20 years ago? I believe so. You know, when I was a kid um, here in Seattle, actually more folks lived in single-family housing, and so if you wanted to grow, you could probably grow somewhere in your yard, and I think there's a tradition of that as as um, more and more folks uh, moved into denser and denser housing, then you have less opportunity. I think the rise of the pea patch program was great, but that's very small, limited sort of... Um, gets an individual or family to be able to go out but not 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 really um necessarily a big community building um you know situation so i think the the uh, realization that cities are little islands and it's it's going to be the cities that are going to improve the um the health and welfare of their um 
of the folks that live there. I think we're going to be looking to cities for leadership in terms of government um, uh, and in terms of how, to, how, how our city is going to be more sustainable. And so I think there's a lot of, um, especially in Seattle, this idea of, of planning and looking at how we're going to really um, strengthen our food system in Seattle. Um, and I think more and more folks are realizing, I think for a while there, there was that generation of, man, my grandparents were on a farm. Uh, you know, I don't want to work on a farm. Um, but now folks are starting to see the benefit, at least of, of again, of, of uh, trying to grow a little bit of your own food and the community um, that it can build around that, that process. Do you know at all? I mean, have you looked at all at some of the past programs and how they've evolved? Do you know if the participation has grown over the last couple decades? I can speak anecdotally to my experience at Alley Cut Acres. We've definitely seen an exponential increase in interest and also um, interest from landowners hoping to activate their space. Um, I think the Pea Patch program definitely has a lot of statistics that I haven't looked at, but they have grown to include a lot more pea patches, but due to a lack of increasing funding, they've been really bursting at the seams with folks who are interested in getting a pea patch and, again, landowners who are interested in, and communities who are interested in activating more pea patches and um, not having the capacity and the sustainable funding streams to make it happen. So I think there's the will. Um, now we have to find the way to fund these types of projects and make them sustainable and bring in components um, where folks are really um, having economic empowerment through the farming as well. Another model that uh, that we've been looking at is down in Tacoma, Hilltop Urban Gardens, and Dean down there has done a great job of developing this um, on a, at, the, at the speed of trust, I think is what they say, um, that um, um, connecting homeowners and um, supporting them either on their on their property or on their parking strips to actually grow more food and then having that in a small area in order to be able to distribute that food and again being part of a community that's growing and distributing the food um, a great way to build community and to try to keep um, keep I mean a, a lot of our areas are being gentrified right and folks are being pushed out and so how is it that that you can strengthen the folks that are there and one way to do it is to strengthen the community so people know what's going on um, you know, help them improve their property values in terms of, um, or at least, uh, well, not too much because then you get taxed, but so that's the system. But to really feel that you're part of community and so you don't get pushed out of some areas. And then that folks that move into the community can become and be part of the garden and actually be open to understanding what is it like to be a good neighbor in this community rather than bringing the way you think into a community and then trying to impose it on there, but to actually try to fit into where you're, where you're coming. Um, and so a little bit of cultural humility, I think, can go a long way for, toward making our cities a, a better place to live and more inclusive all around. What's your goal for the Pollinator Week, given those things? Like, what's your ideas for who you're going to reach and what you want them to go away with? Well, my specific goal is is to share our work uh, in the community and the Yes Farm uh, and how we're planning to be a model of if you're going to start a farm, how can you put pollinators, you know, up there in your uh, in your checklist of what's going on. Um, for me, I think it's a great opportunity to, again, get our word out and then to collaborate with other folks that are coming. I mean, just already in this collaboration, I've met um, some of the scientists involved and um, really have a deeper understanding of what these pollinators need in terms of the habitat 
so that's inf already informed the early plants, for, you know, for the for the farm. Um, so um, I, I'm looking at um, I and I personally, I'm going to try to get more people of color to attend by advertising the fact that so we can sort of diversify these uh, environmental meetings. How is it that we get a larger number? What is it that we have to do to um, make pe people feel safe and feel like they can come out and they can they can be welcome at a, at a space like that? And so th those are some things we're, we're, I'm, we're looking forward to this. Yeah, I think overall for the week, we're really hoping to provide people with opportunities to look at these bees and have hands-on experiences in the field. We're also hosting a field day on Monday at the Beacon Food Forest with our um, WSU entomologist. So really give people practical hands-on tools to apply at home or, you know, in their landscaping practices commercially, et cetera. And we're also really hoping to connect communities, as Ray was kind of speaking to, to start talking about collaborative impact in this scope and really bring people together around bees because they're so essential. You're trying to get this land that is land that the city has or that the utilities have. At the same time, there are people who are saying, we need to use whatever land is owned for housing. Are you in conflict or is there some way to do both? I think that there are people in power who see the green space movement as in conflict with the need for housing, but I would argue that we must do both because there's no value in creating a dense urban space without any nature. I think that everyone who really loves Seattle and values this place and this space has a deep appreciation for the natural environment and to remove completely our urban canopy or our public parks or our opportunities to grow food in the city would really be a disservice to our citizens. So we have to just be smart and creative about developing these, for instance, right-of-way spaces that they'll never be able to build on. They can't build housing under the transmission corridors. They're always going to need to have access there and have green space there. So let's be smart and effective about what plants are there. I guess I'll bring this up. So, you know, one of the reasons that um, WashDOT and, and Yesler, um, the Seattle Housing Authority, was interested in activating this strip of land along I-5 is, is it be, had become an uh, urban camp, camping spot and um, open-air drug use, and the residents were afraid um, and folks moving in and out. And so I, I do have a, a, you know, a tension uh, I certainly don't want to be looked at as as an organization that's pu pushing out folks that are trying to trying to live. But I also don't think that living in a tent next to the freeway is is a, is an answer to our housing problem, right? How do we look at housing and creating green space? I mean, we have examples around the country of very high dense populated areas with very little green space and it has just not been good for the folks living in the traditional eastern housing projects let's say right very bad so we need to figure out how to create a relatively dense city um, with all those amenities so it's not just a place to live and exist and work but a place to 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 really flourish so it's important to have those those natural spaces, and so you you need you'd be smart in your development. Um, again, rather than a lawn that um, Washdot has to mow, um, you have an urban farm that's creating some community and some economic development and and some uh, a spot for nature. 
And also, I mean, these gardens and urban farms have the potential to provide a lot of services for folks who are recovering from homelessness or addiction through therapeutic gardening, through job training, through the, you know opportunities to get involved in value-added market farms. And if the city really wants to put their money where their mouth is, they can't just build tiny houses. They need to also offer recovery services. And there's lots of people doing the work who really would love to provide those services through gardening. And I've through my work at the Cascade People Center, where there is a large um, transitional housing population, in addition to people living in the park and on the street, I've had a lot of great interpersonal connection with people in the garden. And I think that there's huge potential to replicate that. When you're out and about thinking about these issues and you need a little respite, what are the places you each go to? I love the Danny Wu Garden. It's really beautiful, has plants always that are surprising me, and it's an amazing garden because to get a plot there, you actually have to be over 65 years old, so it's a great opportunity for inter- <laughs> intergenerational farming techniques, um, so I love to go back there and check it out. Um, and really, I mean, I'm a busy person, so every minute I can get at the Cascade People Center garden, um, just working in the dirt, really essential to me. Cascade People Center. It's in South Lake Union. It's about uh, two blocks away from REI. Still a very needed part of South Lake Union to have just a little postage stamp of green space. And there's also a pea patch there as well. I actually go to some of the urban farms that I'm involved in, whether it's uh, Nurturing Roots Farm on Beacon Hill, Africatown Grow at uh, at the old uh, Columbia Annex down outside of Columbia City. Um, got an urban farm uh, with an aquaponic system on South Walker Street in Seattle. So I have a lot of nice, and in my front yard, where I'm able to grow some vegetables along with a little bit of a plot of land and some, some decorative plants. So um, definitely like to just be able to go outside and just commune with nature for a few minutes uh, before turning around, right, and going back, whether it's correcting papers or planning um, for these farm events. Um, yeah, or, or home remodeling. It's all got to be done. Allison, Ray, thank you both. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening again to At Length. I appreciate you taking the time. Interesting topic, I think. Next time you're wandering your neighborhood, give a thought to all those native pollinators that uh, might just like it if you leave a little strip of bare earth somewhere in your garden. Talk to you again. <laughs>